I thought I'd talk a little bit about the potential of practice. I like the I like the sense of potential of practice even more than the goal. The goal might be the same, but when I think about potential and I think about the possibilities, as I begin to understand them for this practice, I find it so exciting and so inspiring that we could, in this very lifetime, be happy. It's the name of a book by Upandita in this very lifetime. Really understanding a little bit what that means about being happy. Certainly doesn't mean being pleased all the time. If, if being happy depended on being pleased, it would be really difficult to be happy because much of the time it's hard to be pleased. Life is difficult and in a, in a body, in a relationship, in a world, in a planet that's in jeopardy. There are lots of things that we're not pleased to have happen. And how to remain a person um, of faith, of confidence, prepared to engage oneself for the well-being of all beings in this world with spirit, without despair, with contentment, with a great deal of spirit and with contentment for what is, with what is. I think it's important to talk a little bit about the potential of this practice because particularly for people who are new to the practice and people who are old to the practice as well, when we come and we're determined to practice well and we listen to the instructions for practice and lots of techniques and suggestions, you could do this and you could do that, it's easy to get uh, sidetracked into thinking that we're practicing here in order to become good meditators, that uh, we're practicing uh, to become good meditators or good breath watchers or good walking masters or good mental noters. And when we come to uh, interviews, we talk about the difficulty with remaining with the attention, resting in the breath, or remaining clear in mental notes. And it's possible to begin to think that we're doing this in order to get good at doing those techniques, and to forget that those are techniques, and that they are techniques to help in the process of seeing clearly that really what we've come to do is to try to wake ourselves up. I have an image that I think about sometimes about how we're all just a little bit drowsy, but we don't know it because we think that asleep is asleep and awake is awake. And that when we are walking around on our feet and talking to people and operating heavy machinery, we tend to think we tend to think of ourselves as being awake. I wouldn't think of driving my car asleep or operating a lawnmower asleep. And yet there's a way in which we're not really awake. We're quite confused and befuddled and captivated and frightened by all kinds of mind habits that we've gotten so used to that we don't even know that they're there. A friend of mine said a wonderful line a few weeks ago. I met him on a trip I was on, and I've I've been thinking about that line ever since he said, uh, I don't know who it was that discovered water, but I'm sure it wasn't a fish. (laughs) And I've thought about that so much in terms of the ways in which we get used to what's our natural habitat of the mind. And we think that that's normal, or necessary, or usual, or awake. You know, when you're sleeping in the morning, or out of the morning, sometimes sleeping, sleeping, 
and you think you've woken up, but you start to drowse off again, and someone is talking to you. And they say, wake up, wake up. And you say, I'm up, I'm up, look, I'm up, I'm really up. And But you're really not. You're kind of falling back asleep. And they say, you're not up. And you say, no, I'm up. I think that's what happens to us in the course of trying to wake ourselves up. And I'd like for you to think of all of the techniques that we do here, resting the attention consistently with the breath, bringing the attention consistently with body sensations and awarenesses as we walk, or eat, or take a shower, or make a salad, or vacuum the steps, as techniques to clear the mind so that we wake up and see clearly and understand what's true, so that in those moments of wakefulness we will continue to make clear judgments about what's true and what's a wise response to what's true. So that in the moments that continue, we continue to keep as much as we can a clear mind by not continually muddling it up. I had an image one time, one of, uh, one of uh, uh, the teachers that I met along in, in my te- learning experience was a Sri Lankan monk who's... Um, been dead some years now, but in the very last year of his life, in fact, he was teaching at a retreat at which I was a student in Southern California, and I went to him for an interview, and I told him my practice question at the time, which was that uh, my habit, uh, when I sit, is uh, I like to go to sleep early at night. I like to go to bed when it's dark. I, I'm, my biological clock, I think, works so that it gets dark, and I feel that my energy isn't so clear. And so if I go to bed early at 9 or 9.30, I'll get up at 12.30 or 1 or 2, and I'll be quite awake. And uh, particularly in this retreat center, the decision at 1 or 2 to go and sit in the meditation hall was more complex than here, because here you could get up, come sit in the hall, and if you found you were sleepy, you could go right back to bed. There, the meditation hall was at least a quarter of a mile from where our cabins were. So it required getting up out of bed, getting dressed, going to the meditation hall. It was a decision to go. You didn't do it lightly. So I'd get up and I'd go to the meditation hall filled with zeal and wide awake. And I would sit down and five minutes later I'd start to be sleepy and drowse. And then I'd wake up and sit a little bit more and then I'd be sleepy and drowsy, and then I'd wake up, and I'd walk a little bit, and sit a little bit, and I'd be sleepy. And I would spend the whole night sitting, walking, sitting, sleeping, sitting, sleeping, walking, sitting, sleeping. And I'd continue, because I was up and there, and I told him my story. I said, this is my story, so do you think it's a total loss? Do you think I should stay in my bed and um, not come down at all? And he said, no, I don't think so. He said, I think you should get up and come even if you keep falling asleep. He said, what matters is not that you fall asleep, but that from time to time you wake up for however long. And he said, keep in mind that every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. That was so inspiring to me. That was one of those lines that carried me through years of practice. Keep in mind that every moment of wakefulness erases a moment of conditioning. And I had this image that somehow my mind was a giant blackboard and it was all scribbled up with conditioning, whatever that was, but scribbled up, not clear. And that every moment in which I was mindful was like I was erasing some of that scribble on that blackboard. And I would tell myself at any time where my enthusiasm or my energy or my effort was flagging, I would remind myself that I didn't know how much scribble I had left. (laughs) And for all I knew, I could have very little scribble left back. And maybe I just had to erase a little bit more on that blackboard, and I'd be completely awake. And then it also contributed to my effort and zeal to think that I had to have the erasing factor happening more than the scribbling factor. And that if I erased more persistently than I scribbled, I would eventually erase the conditioning. 
It's amazing to think that that one line that Usivali said to me a long time ago was really so effective in my practice. I love to share it with people then I think that his legacy goes on and that he continues to teach people and that you'll tell it to somebody and they'll continue to teach people with it. So what we are doing here with all of these techniques is we are trying to wake up. We're trying to see clearly. We're trying to cut through the habitual fog of hindrances and difficult mind energies and confusions that keep us from seeing clearly knowing clearly the truth of the moment. I like to think of the definition for mindfulness being unwavering truthfulness. It's a phrase I read recently in one of the commentaries on the Zen ox-herding pictures. And I like that phrase so much, unwavering truthfulness. Being able to stay balanced and know what is the truth of this moment, the whole truth of this moment, which means knowing not only this is what's happening, this is what I feel about it, this is my response to it, this is the impulse of the heart in response to it, either a neutral response or I like it and the impulse to reach out and get some more of it or the I don't like it and the impulse to wish it would go away and the impulse to disturb the mind with wishing to have more or wishing to have less and the clarity around those impulses that allows us not to waver. Unwavering awareness, this is the truth of this moment, and along with it, seeing clearly what are the potentials, what are the choices I have in this moment. Given this is the truth of the moment, what are the possibilities? And given the possibilities, what is the wisest and most compassionate response to this moment? It's not to say that we unwaver in our response. Sometimes it's a wise and compassionate response to move towards pleasant experiences and to rest in them and enjoy them. Sometimes it's possible when experience is unpleasant to move away from it with ease and balance and grace. And sometimes it's not possible. So to be, and to be able to say, I would have liked more or I would have liked less, but it's not possible. So I'll rest. To be able to see clearly what's the potential of this moment? What are the possibilities? What can I do that's wise and skillful that does not create confusion in the mind? That's really, for me, the fullest way that I think about mindfulness. And when I think about that, I think about how it seems to me so uh, so much the definition of freedom the freedom of choice, to be able to see clearly this is what's the possibilities, this is what would be wise, and being able to choose that. And in that choice, to be choosing, in addition to this moment of freedom, uh, a kind of conditioning of the next moment. It's kind of a right effort moment. We can only really act in this moment, but how we act in this moment conditions moments to come. I want to talk more about right effort as we go along. But I thought I would say something more about the terrain of waking up and the ways in which we can see waking up happening as we sit here day after day, just doing these simple techniques of keeping the attention as gracefully and as steadfastly and as easily as we can on quite the simple truth of every moment. We leave the attention resting in the breath, not because the breath is magic, but because the breath is here. When we sit here quietly, in a quiet room, with our eyes closed, not moving, if there is not another compelling experience happening, in the body or in the mind, the breath is what's the most predominant thing present. It's the most likely place for the attention to naturally rest. It's actually, I think, not so much uh, a question of resting the attention in the breath as much as the attention rests in the breath when everything else is quiet. It is where the attention rests. I have very much the sense 
not that I bring the attention to the breath, but that the breath presents itself to me as the prominent experience of the moment. It's quite a restful way to practice, just to wait for experience to present itself, not to reach forward to for it. Here's this breath, here's this breath, here's this breath. And with the extra effort of these first few days of choosing that when there's a choice, there's some awareness of breath and awareness of thoughts and awareness of moods and awareness of other things as well, choosing that awareness when we can, because breath is for the most part plain and neutral and resting in a plain and neutral repetitive event is a way of building a certain amount of composure in the mind. And so when we talk about the balanced recognition of the moment as being what mindfulness is, that balance depends on a certain amount of composure on the mind, and to build a certain amount of balance, concentration, composure. And it comes through resting the attention in plain event of the moment. The plain event of the moment when we sit is the breath and the rest of the body sensations that are part of it. The plain event of the moment as we walk are the sensations in the feet and the sensations in the body. People, especially new to practice, sometimes don't quite understand the walking practice. It seems a little contrived and sometimes a little slower than people are comfortable with. So I'd like to remind you that um, all of the practice, sitting and walking and eating and doing your job and going from place to place and showering, are all different positions in which we practice resting the attention in a composed way in the principal experience of the moment. When we walk, the main experience is sensations in the feet. When we eat, the main experience are the experiences of moving the arm and tasting the food and swallowing and smelling and looking at it and delighting in it. And so resting the, resting the, letting the attention rest in those principal experiences that are right there. Just being with what's here now itself clears the mind of all the fogs and disturbances and confusions that come and go. And there are ways that we can tell as we practice day by day here that in fact the mind is becoming clearer, waking up. Here are the ways that you can tell. One of them is quite a simple way and it has to do with enhanced sensory awareness that just happens by itself as we sit here day after day in this quiet environment with a simple life without continuing to overstimulate our mind and body, people begin to notice that uh, sense experience is clearer so that colors sometimes look a little sharper and sounds are a little sharper. Shapes seem to stand out sometimes a little sharper. Smells get a little bit more intense. Sometimes they're quite wonderful. Smell a meal. All the way down the hall, I used to be able to tell as the days in a retreat center went by that in fact the mind was a little bit clearer because I could smell the lunch further and further down the hall. (laughs) Could smell the oatmeal from really far away. I was really always delighted to find that, but when you think about it, there needs to be a more profound reason to practice than (laughs) smelling the oatmeal from down at the end of the hall, although it's quite interesting to do that. And it's not always delightful either, because if you spend a long time in a retreat center, there are days when the windows have been closed in here for a long time, and you come in and you smell the fact that a hundred people have been in here all day. And that smell is more prominent to you. So it doesn't make only wonderful smells more keen. It makes all the smells more keen. 
So we wake up to body sensations. And it, it can be really quite lovely, but it's really just what it is. I thought if I, my taste was really waked up that everything would taste wonderful. And a dry apple is a dry apple. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a certain way in which we're probably more aware it's a dry apple when we're waked up than not. And that's really just the first level of hints that the mind has become a little more clear. Aldous Huxley used to call it cleansing the doors of perception. Another thing that becomes clearer just presents itself as clear. You don't need to look for it. As time goes by and as we steadfastly just do this practice of attending to the breath and attending to the walking and attending to the eating and the most simple parts of our experience, is our the dynamics of the mind in terms of its psychological patterns. Each of us thinks in kind, in a certain predictable kind of habitual way. Each of us has our main stories that are the stories of our life that cycle through predictably. Some of which, I remember thinking of some of them as kind of oh dear stories that I'd, I'd, I'd go to a retreat and I'd think, I only hope that I do not think about this and this. If I don't think about this and this, I'll be quite content. But if I think about it, I won't be quite content. And that is about as effective as telling someone, in the next two minutes, don't think anything about elephants. Because as soon as you say that, and a person has the alarm, "Uh uh-oh, I might think about elephants in the next two minutes, there's no way that you can possibly not think about elephants in those two minutes. And to know that there are stories of our lives that are painful and grievous and tangled and fretful and worrisome, and they will, if they're part of our lives, come up. And to have the understanding that that story could come, and the possibility exists that we not entertain it very long, that we not be trapped by it. I'd like to tell you that that's one aspect of right effort in practice. The same time that there is some value to seeing what the stories are, we wake up to our psychological selves and say, look at that, I'm still really reactive to that. Look at that, I'm still held in the sway of this story. Look at this, this is still paining me. And it's fine to learn that. There really is no part of truth that is not valuable. The truth of the dry apple, the truth of the sad story or the grievous story, those are all truths that we are, we are well off to know. I think that we come here principally to discover on some very uh, deep and direct and intuitive way what the truths of all experience are. I, I, I thought about, as I was thinking about talking about this, I was going to talk about the truth of the sense experience moment and the truth of our psychological individual lives and spiritual truths that I thought I would say about them. I don't want to present them hierarchically because truth is truth and all truth is valuable. And there's another part of me that feels that ultimately seeing those um, truths of all experience, which we might call the spiritual truths or the truths of life, are really, uh, maybe are hierarchically more important. Everything is important, and I think that the key, in fact, to freedom is a direct and clear realization of fundamental truths, and everything else counts. So as we see the truths of our stories, one of the ways that it's possible to hold those stories without so much grief around them or so much pain 
is to know their temporal nature. Just the sense, "Uh uh-oh, here comes my story again, is a reminder that that story isn't there all the time. So that when it's there, we can acknowledge it and know it. And even know the sadness or the pain that we feel about that story. We have emotional systems. We have nervous systems and they vibrate, in fact. I imagine they vibrate. I can't see them, but I feel that they vibrate when I think about something about which I feel a lot of pain or grief. I feel shaken in my being. I think one of the great rewards of this practice has been the experience over time that it's possible to be shaken in one's being and hold that and then have it pass and then have the next experience. Really important for me to really discover that in the years of my practice because I think I imagined, I know I imagined when I began this practice, that if I practiced hard enough and meditated well enough that I would come to the end of pain. Of course, that's that's not true. We don't come to the end of pain in our lives. In bodies, in relational lives, alert to the truth of the world, I actually come to think that not only do we not come to the end of pain, but maybe we feel it more clearly. And maybe, in fact, that's really the cause of our deepened capacity for compassion. I think what's really been important for me to realize is that it's possible to hold pain, that it's part of the capacity of the heart to be present for pain, sometimes to be present for it without struggle, and even to be present for it with struggle. I love to think about the notion that the end of suffering is possible and that if we had enough clarity of vision and enough balance of heart, that pain could come and joy could come and the mind would be so thoroughly deconditioned from reactivity that it wouldn't interact with it, and that we would have pain and we would have joy, but not suffering, which is the struggle with pain and joy. But I'm not there yet, so I don't know that for sure. I I know it for an idea. It's an idea that I love. But it's been a very great source of freedom and excitement and indeed liberation to know that it's at least partly possible, that I can struggle less and suffer less. I thought for a while, if I told that to people, that it would sound like sour grapes, that, that not being at the end of suffering, I would say, well, it's all right to suffer less. It's terrific to suffer less. Wonderful to suffer less. We'll just suffer less and less and less, and that will be wonderful. One of the things that people see about their psychological patterns is they see the normal pattern of dynamics or the habitual pattern of dynamics of the mind. And when they get to see that clearly, it begins to be possible to disidentify from it, not take it so seriously. It's kind of like the fish discovering that it swims in water. Say, oh, this is water. Begin to see the dynamics of the mind we're able to say, oh, this is my pattern. This is just my pattern. It's back again. That's interesting. Look at that. Still here. I still do that same pattern that I used to do and that I learned to do and that maybe I learned as a result of my childhood and maybe I learned from my parents and maybe I learned from my community and maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's karmic. Genetic would be karmic anyway. Maybe it's all karmic. My genes and my family and my group. But to be able to say, this is my karma in this life. I have this kind of way that my mind processes materials. And that's okay. I don't really need to struggle with it too much. I can be alert to it so I don't get trapped by it and confused by it. 
but it can just come and go. Talking about practicing with zeal is so interesting. Talking with right effort. Someone told me a story not so long ago about something that had just happened to her. She had had a tumor removed from her abdomen. And when it was removed, she got a diagnosis from the pathologist a day later that it was malignant. And uh, she said, I, I then wanted a second opinion, so I had it sent to some major metropolis near where she lives. And she said it took a number of weeks because they had to reprocess the slides and have the tumor board meeting. And she said, during those weeks, she said, I had such incredible alertness. I practiced with such dedication. I was diligent. I was disciplined. I was, in spite of the fact that I was very dismayed to find that I had been diagnosed with a malignancy, I was awake and clear, and I had a certain amount of joy in the clarity of my practice. And she said, just yesterday, I got a phone call from the pathology department in this major metropolis that it's not malignant. She said, and I feel like I've fallen right back to sleep. (laughs) And all my zeal is gone. And it was wonderful. I mean, first of all, she was supremely happy, as was I, that the tumor was not malignant. And what I told her is, you know, what I actually told her was give yourself a little slack. Probably you're a little tired from this three-week ordeal. Maybe you could actually take a little rest for a day. But it would be wonderful to cultivate the kind of zeal that the Buddha suggested. The Buddha suggested that we should practice as if our hair were on fire. Isn't that a great image? I mean, if if your hair were on fire, we would really practice. But in a certain sense, our hair is on fire. That it's a very short life. I've gotten old incredibly quickly. We all have. I began to practice 20 years ago, and it seems like yesterday. And I got married more than 40 years ago, and that seems like yesterday. And the sense I have from that is I'm quite likely to wake up tomorrow and find that I'm 80. And we all will. And we'll find that our whole life has collapsed, disappeared. Does it seem that way to you? That the whole life has disappeared. It has disappeared. There is nothing of it left, only memory traces. And here we are with very limited time left. And how to practice with zeal that's not fatiguing. Some people in uh, interview today said, I feel like I'm striving too hard. Maybe I shouldn't strive. Actually, I, I, I'm going to look over and see what 
if I'd see a reaction of Joseph and Sharon, because we always say to people, don't strive. I said, strive. I think it's good to strive. <laughs> I don't think it's so bad to strive. I, I, think it's, I, I think it's very bad to demoralize yourself about how badly you're doing. But I would like to suggest that we strive, but not demoralize yourself. The very last thing the Buddha said was strive on with confidence. Strive on with diligence. Strive on with diligence. Very last word, strive on with diligence. I find it's very heroic. And I would like to say on top of that, confident diligence. Sharon told a wonderful story last week, so some of you who were here will remember it. But it's a very important story about uh, her beginning her metta practice with Upandita in Burma and having Upandita ask her, how do you think you're going to do in this practice? And thinking that perhaps it was hubris to say, I'm going to do great, to, she said with all humility, well, I'm not sure, maybe I'll do well, maybe I won't do well. And he, in essence, said, that's no good, that you have to say, I'm going to do great. I am entirely confident. Why not? None of us is trying to do anything that is beyond possibility. We're not trying to do anything outrageous. We're not even trying to get to be anyone that we aren't. We're trying to remember who we are. It's as easy as that, really. When you think about um, the definition of the Brahma-viharas, really the essence of who we are, balanced, friendly, generous, compassionate, responsive, as being the essence of who we are, natural condition of the mind, not the condition of the mind of special people, the condition of the mind. And that for each of us, the task is to cut through all of the confusion that keeps us from being in touch with that, remembering that. In addition to thinking of this practice as waking up, I like to think of it as coming home. So we're really coming home to ourselves in the fullest way. Waking up to ourselves. Waking up to all the hidden things. Waking up our body so that we feel fully. And just as I was mentioning before, not to underestimate how lovely it is to have our senses be fully awake. Here we are in a body. Why not have it be an awakened body? And here we are, in fact, emotional beings with psychological systems. Why not be awake to the dynamics of our psychological systems? And to see, these are my stories, these are my tendencies, these are my traits, these are my mind filters, these are the hidden secrets that I keep in the shadow, but if I bring them out of the shadow, then I can address them, not only be awake to them and know the truth of them, but if they're in the shadow because they're hard for me to see, because they're unskillful traits, if I bring them out from the shadow, after the initial dismay of seeing what's there, I can address myself to them so that I don't do them anymore. I can make those choices. What we are awake to, we are free to change. In moments of awakeness, there's tremendous freedom. Think about all the spiritual traditions that I know have stories about uh, seekers who hear a word, hear a story about a hidden treasure that's somewhere, a great jewel that's someplace else. And usually the stories, in whatever tradition, is that the seeker goes over large distances and against all odds and arrives somewhere where someone says, you made a terrible mistake. That very treasure is hidden under your bed at home. And then they go home, and sure enough, they dig under their bed, and there it is. <laughs> and what if we discover... In fact, that the very treasure of our essence is right here at home, 
and that it isn't a question of acquiring it. It's a question of seeing through all of the delusion that prevents us from feeling it. Remember that one of the things that uh, was inspiring to me in the very beginning of my practice was the fact that my teachers all looked like regular people. Mostly they were younger than I was, and plain people with plain lives. It was very inspiring to me, because especially that I knew that they had regular lives with regular stories and regular troubles, just like everybody else has. And yet they seemed, in a way that I wasn't, happy. And the notion that it was possible in this lifetime, aware of pain, and dealing with pain, having a story like everyone else had, to nevertheless be content in it, active in it, engaged in it, but not frantic, not trapped, was so inspiring to me. And I had tremendous confidence in the fact that I could do it just because they looked plain. I thought, if they can do it, I can do it, whatever it is. Because at that point, I was very much confused about how this all worked. I kind of got it about the instructions, but I didn't get it about how they worked. I got it about the technique, do this or do this or do this. And it was really important for me to learn as time went by that as I began to understand how these different technical instructions bring the attention to the breath actually related to cutting through the fog of confusion in the mind and allowing me to feel for any amount of time peaceful or happy. My zeal then increased about practice. It's very hard to do this practice if you don't really know where you're going with it. It's a tremendously odd thing to do. You know, I sometimes think to myself, what if a person from another planet, or a person that, for, even from this planet, <laughs> who, who never heard of this, doesn't get it, came and looked at us? We look odd. Everybody's sitting here all day long. Everybody absolutely blank of visage. You can't tell a thing about what's going on with people. It's amazing to think that this is such a passionate practice and that inside of everybody's experience are enormous variations of experiences happening. I look at everybody and everybody looks the same. I have no hint of whether in that person's experience at this moment is tremendous serenity or a tremendous explosion or absolute restlessness or whether they're fast asleep or what is happening. But if someone were to look at us, it's odd to sit and to walk and to sit and to walk and especially to walk in that slow way. It's odd to keep your eyes averted. It looks so unfriendly. I've sat, uh, depending on my, my mind state, I've sat in the dining room here in, at a time that my mind state was one of despair or discouragement. I look around and think, everybody looks like a zombie. Nobody home. This is the most dreary thing I've ever seen. <laughs> We've all gone mad. And then the very next night, with a new mind state and peace or happiness or ecstasy happening with me, I look around, those very same people, in the very same faces, in the very same mode, look gorgeous. Everybody looks like a saint. Everybody looks wonderful. I'm completely in love with everybody. And they're the same people. And I've manufactured the experience all with my mind state. And to begin to see that, and to see that actually that 
phrase that enjoyed some popularity uh, when we got New Age phrases. We create our own reality. It's true. Not in any magical way of uh, making the sun rise in the west instead of in the east. Or any number of people tell me I have meditated fiercely for years waiting for the relationship of my lifetime. And I read all kinds of things that said, if you wish it, it will come. And it hasn't come. So that kind of reality, I'm not sure we can create. I think we create the reality of our mind states and that our experience then is a reflection of our mind state. The truth of our experience is really an internal truth and everything else appears the way it does as a result of our internal truth. And I think we have a choice about that mind state. So I want to talk just a little bit about right effort. I didn't understand it for a long time because I thought right effort was trying hard um, or making as much effort as I could. Kind of a bland definition of right effort. Try hard. There's a particular definition of right effort. The Buddha gave a particular definition of right effort. And that was to make the effort to be aware of the presence in the mind of wholesome mind states, mind states that led to happiness, and aware of their presence to cultivate them, to keep them in the mind, aware of their absence to cultivate them in the mind, and aware of the absence in the mind of unwholesome mind states, mind states that lead to unhappiness to make some effort to keep them out and aware of the presence in the mind of unwholesome mind states, mind states that lead to unhappiness, to make an effort to exclude them from the mind. So that sounds perhaps to people who are just beginning to practice, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like those instructions I heard about just being alert to what's ever there and trying to make a balance in understanding and knowing and accepting this is the truth. That's only the half of it. Obviously, it requires balance in knowing this is the truth of the moment. But then in that balanced moment of recognition is complete freedom. And we can choose, really, where we choose to bring our attention in the next moment. Uh, my uh, teacher, Sharon, used to end um, interviews uh, with a particular salutation. I'd be on my way out the door and I'd have my hand on the doorknob and she'd say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And uh, I thought that was just a pleasant way to end an interview. And... Uh, Subsequently, I realized it's an instruction, and it's an important instruction. And I realized that because I would be going about my practice doing whatever I was doing, and there's a way in which you're going along and aware and aware and mindful and present and present and mindful and mindful and present, present, mindful. And then all of a sudden, some drama starts in the mind, and you don't notice it's starting. And then the mind gets all tied up in the drama and it carries on, frightens, confuses. And by and by, the mind getting tenser and tenser, a certain amount of suffering is present. And by and by, there's an awareness of the presence of suffering. And often I would become aware of the presence of suffering because the voice of my teacher would float through my mind and it would say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I think, I'm not happy. And But that moment is a moment of mindfulness. It's a moment of alert clarity of what my situation is. And it was a moment in which I felt almost like free fall. You know, when people talk about you jump out of an airplane before you pull your parachute, free fall. You can direct yourself. That moment of alertness, hey, 
I'm not happy. That's the truth. And I'm awake. In that moment, I get to choose. And in that moment, I can take a breath. Just that breath. In that moment, as I'm awake, I'm unhappy. Here I am. And I'm putting my foot down with complete clarity. That's all I'm doing is putting my foot down. And then I'm putting the other foot down. And then I'm putting this foot down. And then I'm putting this foot down. And moments of clarity about putting the foot down are moments of clarity, just like moments of clarity about anything, are moments of clarity, which are moments of presence and moments of happiness. And in that moment of waking up, there's no custodial care that you need to do about what already happened. You used to think you had to tidy up the mess that you'd made in the mind. And it's a terrific piece of news to notice that you don't need to tidy it up. It disappears because it's nothing anyway. It just disappears. All you have to do is let it go. And it's gone like bursting a balloon. It's not there anymore. In that moment is a moment of freedom, a moment of choice, a moment of forward. This is going to be a, an end to a story for some of you. Uh, the little bit of true confessions, too. The people who were here last week will know that I said parenthetically as part of a talk that I did last week that for one reason or another there been a lot of grumbling in my mind that day. And I just told it in terms of what I hope would make the point that from time to time the mind grumbles. And what's important is to know that the mind can grumble away and you can keep on anyway, and you know. It didn't, I didn't stay in bed because my mind was grumbling, and I think I probably was pleasant to people, even with my grumbly mind, and I showed up for all my interviews, I even gave a talk that night, mind grumbling away, but I did it anyway. And I probably gave that talk and mentioned that parenthetically, just to make that point about that we don't need to be held hostage to grumbling. I'd like to make a further coda on that, I'd like to end the story because I really didn't make enough right effort, and I didn't have to spend the day grumbling. And I had said at the time, I didn't say complete truth, but maybe I didn't know the complete truth. I said my mind, for whatever reason, was in a grumbly mood. This is the reason it was in a grumbly mood. Um, I've been here for, I've been gone from home for mm, mm, uh, more than a week, long time. And I will have been gone almost three weeks by the time I go home. And I call my husband every night about 10 o'clock and 7 o'clock in California. And in the beginning, I said, um, why don't you fly to Barry on uh, Valentine's Day? That's a week from Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday. Why don't you fly to Barry on Wednesday and then stay till Sunday and we'll fly back to California together. You've never been to Barry. Well, it's my home for 20 years. It'd be good for you to see it. I gave... A lot of reasons why that would be a good thing to do. It's Valentine's Day. <laughs> and he said, uh, I'll think about it. And every day I would say, uh, so are you coming to Barry? And he said, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and on the day of the grumbly mind, I said to him, so are you coming to Barry? And he said, no, I thought about it. <laughs> and uh, I decided not to come. So I said, oh, I wish you would have come. He said, no, I thought about not coming. I said, well, all right, I'll be home on Sunday. And I hung up the phone. This is early in the day. I'd call him about something else. And I had the thought, he doesn't love me. If he loved me, he'd come to Barry. <laughs> and at the time that I had that thought, I completely knew that it's nonsense. It's nonsense. He loves me fine. But the mind makes up a thought, and then it continues that thought. I knew it's a not true thought, but there it is, and then it continues, it talks to itself, and it says, so I don't have to call him tonight. I mean, he'll notice that I didn't call him, but I don't have to call him. And what's more, I don't have to call him tomorrow night either. Of course, I'll call him on Friday, because I always call on Friday evening, but and so he'd re it would really be mean of me not to call before Friday evening. So I won't, I'll call Friday late afternoon. But I 
don't have to call tonight, certainly, and I don't have to call tomorrow. Let him stew a little bit. And this whole conversation is, he doesn't have to come. He thought about it. He doesn't have to come. But, but I'm definitely not calling him tonight, so he'll get lost. And this grumble is continuing. In the meantime, I have interviews with people, and I... Some of you may have been some of the people that I saw on that day, and you probably think, hey, she seemed pleasant as ever, but in the meantime, the grumbling is continuing over here, and it's taking a certain toll. I didn't feel good. And I mentioned probably that night to Sharon, I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to do a good talk, because my mind is grumbling all day long, and it's debilitating to have a grumbly mind, but it just grumbles along all day long. And so I came, and I gave a talk. It was whatever it was, probably reasonably all right, but grumbly. And then I went back to, uh, went back after the talk to the study center where I'm staying, and I phoned them. And the thing is, I knew all day long I would phone. There was... There was, ne there, was, there was never a moment in which I sincerely thought that I would not phone. I knew that this is just an extraneous tape loop, just running the whole day. What I didn't do is stop doing it. And I could have at any time during that day, since I absolutely knew I was going to call anyway, I could have said, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you doing this? You're not happy. You're not comfortable. It was as if I had gone into a movie that was a bad movie, strapped myself into the seat. <laughs> and determined not to, and sat through several showings. <laughs> It's not necessary. <laughs> right effort would have been stopping the movie. Just right away. Say to myself, this is nonsense, don't do it. And every single time that the tape loops, it's a habit. That It's a re completely ridiculous habit. It's a habit. It's a, I don't know why the mind does that sort of thing. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. But lots of times we do things that are not pleasant and not comfortable just because we are not making enough effort not to do it. Would have taken a moment of effort to say, I could have said to myself, Sylvia, remember, be happy. You're not happy. Don't do it. That same awareness, the same awareness, my mind is grumbling, which I went around with all day. My mind is grumbling. is a moment of almost mindfulness. It's kind of in the ballpark of mindfulness. But if I would have really been alert, it would have been, my mind is grumbling, and it doesn't have to. You have a choice. That's really grumbling and partly seduced by the grumbling and partly fatigued by the grumbling. It's not clear seeing. It's not really mindfulness. And I tell you that story because sometimes people get in a mood Tomorrow night, probably, someone will talk about the different kinds of moods and difficult mind states that predictably come and go. So this is kind of a, an antecedent thought for the working with those moods. Moods come and go. They come predictably. They come with all kinds of causes, sometimes a thought, sometimes a telephone call, sometimes, no, I'm not coming. Sometimes they just come because of the phase of the moon, who knows why. But we don't have to do them. We can notice them. We can really see them clearly. This is here. It's an unskillful mind state. It's conditioning more moments of cloudiness. It's unwholesome. I have a choice. So I'd like to tell you, strive on. <laughs> with diligence. Make a lot of effort. We could be happy in this very lifetime. The Buddha taught that 
seven days of unwavering mindfulness, guaranteed. So that's it for me. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 11, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.